This podcast is part of the Podcast Arcade Network. Good day and welcome to the Goad Kicker Podcast. I am your host, Carl D. Smith. Welcome back to the Goad Kicker Podcast, episode 27. Hope you guys are doing well. Hope you guys are finding something positive to occupy your mind with. You know, I just came from Dunkin' Donuts, which is not... It's it's the lion's den for someone trying to uh, get a little healthier. Um, it's such an ingrained part of my routine in the morning. If I don't have anywhere to be and I'm dressed... And um, especially if I'm planning to try to record uh, a Goat Kicker episode, uh, drive through food or stopping in a donut shop, these things just are a part of the routine and they're hard to break. Um, I did make myself go inside. I've been trying to do a couple different things. Um, neither of them are helping my mood at all, but I think they are helping me make some positive changes. One of those things uh, is I'm trying to pay for frivolous stuff with cash uh, instead of my debit card. Um, I am keenly aware of how fast I can burn through money without even thinking about it, but um, I'm trying to train my brain to be a little more mindful of how fast and uh, and how careless my spending is. And, and the sad thing is, is it's not even that careless. It's just that I'm broke. And uh, I think maybe a few of you out there can uh, relate to that. Uh, there's a lot of things that want your money, uh, a lot of things that need your money. And um, we as nerds aren't always good at pumping the brakes. Uh, but even those of us who are, uh, still find that money uh, disappearing. It's not going into a savings account or a college fund for our children. Uh, it disappears one way or another. So do you want to be broke and miserable or do you want to be broke and at least have a book to read this week? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those classic things that we talk about here on Goad Kicker. So anyway, trying to pay for things with cash when I can. Um, Another benefit of carrying cash is is the bank can't find you on the cash that's in your wallet. So if you spend it, uh, you know, and the the account goes overdraft, you're not getting another $20 charge on a $7 visit to Taco John's. Uh, But the other thing I'm trying to do is actually go in and look at the menu if I'm going to order fast food. Part of the reason I'm doing that is so I can look at the calories and... um, and the prices as well. Um, if you were to ask me up until last week uh, what a donut costs at Dunkin' Donuts, I don't know. And I, I honestly had no idea. Uh, my get, I, I would have guessed. Um, I would have been wrong. Uh, depending on the day, I would have been over or under. I would have been a, a miserable Price is Right uh, contestant. But... Uh, but a, a donut is a buck nine at the Dunkin' Donuts. 
but uh, more than that, I wanted to look at the calories. Um, there's some debate whether or not forcing uh, restaurants to put the calories next to the menu items has been effective or if it's just another sort of big government sort of deal. And quite frankly, I think it works great. I have made a lot of decisions. There's a lot of things I would have ordered off of menus, uh, either out with my wife or with the family, or in in this case, walking into a Dunkin' Donuts that um, I decided against once I was given the information and enough time to sort of process it. So if you have somebody ahead of you that's a little slow on the draw with their order and with writing a check or, or getting money out of their purse or whatever... I, I use that time to sort of uh, browse uh, and make some last-minute, uh, you know, audibles with my order. Um, it works pretty well. Uh, today at Dunkin', and I hate advertising for Dunkin'. Dunkin' is the less than of the donut places, at least here in uh, Council Bluffs, which it's nice that we have multiple donut places. That It's weird that they put them right next door to each other. Uh, in the past, we had uh, grocery stores um, and uh, you know their bakeries, uh, Hy-Vee, Super Saver, and at different times of of history, uh, I would prefer one over another. But uh, but then we got these real donut stores, and we got Krispy Kreme, Krispy Kreme, excuse me, and uh, and Dunkin's and. Um, Duncan's is fine. Uh, I I don't like them for a couple reasons, but the biggest reason I don't care for them is I feel like they're partly responsible for chasing out my favorite bakery in town. Uh, Maddox uh, was doing pretty well, and um, and uh, it's it's a it's a story in itself. But they had these delicious donuts that they made, and it was all like kind of made in store. There, they only had a few varieties every day. Uh, and they had uh, specialty donuts that they would make on different days of the week, and um, they were remarkable. And I feel like when they opened that drive-through Dunkin's, uh, of course, with their um, you know corporate logistics and their ability to cater and to assemble quickly and drive-throughs and all those sorts of things, it's hard for a mom and pop to compete with that. Um, so you know those sort of bigger accounts uh, that kind of give you a leg up on the day. I mean, you can sell one donut and a cup of coffee all day long, uh, but you're not going to pay rent. Uh, but if you sell enough for a law firm, uh, for a meeting or, or the school board or, or whatever, uh, suddenly you, you're getting a chunk of change and you keep the lights on and everything becomes gravy after that. So I think they began to lose a lot of that sort of uh, big, big money. I don't really know that for a fact. Uh, that's my guess is that it definitely didn't hurt help uh, that we had all these uh, alternative uh, suites available. But I digress. I, I go into Dunkin', and um, their big sale right now is $2 uh, for 10 munchkins. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, I wasn't going to get a donut when I woke up this morning. I just wanted a coffee. But I definitely could be tempted. And so if I'm going to get a donut, you know, why not just get a couple of these donut holes and snack on them? They're small, right? And... Uh, you know, they don't add up to much, and uh, I get my little sweet fix and maybe save a few calories. And as I get looking at the um, at the placards that are up uh, next to each bin of donuts, 
Um, I noticed that uh, the donuts are all right around 220, 230 calories a piece, whether they're frosted or not. And um, these uh, donut holes, the glazed ones, the blueberry ones, what have you, they're 70 a pop. 70 calories per donut hole. And so if you order $2 worth of donut holes, which is like, you know, the cheap, uh, quick ordering, just not quite a dozen. I don't know why they don't, they don't bump it up to a dozen because eggs and donuts are, are, are the only things that you buy by the dozen really anymore, right? Maybe maybe sweet corn. But anyway, uh, 10, 10 donut holes for 2 bucks. It's 700 calories. Now, who among us couldn't scarf down 10 donut holes in less than 10 minutes? I, no one's going to eat three and be like, woof. Oh, boy, I think I'm good. 210 calories, three donut holes. I, that's not how those snack finger foods work. 70 calories per donut hole, that's insanity. So I decided not to get a donut. I decided not to get donut holes. And so then I figured out, well, i got to eat something, right? Because I've already lit that rocket, and uh, it's going to blast off one way or another. And so I settled on a bagel. Uh, for 230 calories, 240, at least there's some substance to a bagel. It's not just pure carbs or at least not pure sugar. Cinnamon raisin bagel. It was okay. It was satisfying enough. As satisfying as anything from Dunkin's is going to be for me. But, uh, you know, uh, the other things I would have considered were like they had these things called burrito bowls. It's really just scrambled eggs with other fixins in it. And um, I would have gone that route, but there's like five, six bucks a shot for a little little, uh, carafe, a little uh, souffle cup full of... uh, scrambled eggs which is ridiculous so anyway so different strategies I've been using and some different information it's crazy to think that you know I've uh, almost made it half a century alive here and um, and I'm still shocked by things like the fact that donuts are 250 calories a piece But that's just how the nerd brain works. It's just easy to forget things. It's easy to forget that a Marvel uh, event uh, typically doesn't go the way you think it's going to when they announce it. Or that the excitement generated by a number one issue uh, doesn't usually hold up. That the two or three comic books that you pick up this week because you're trying to whittle down your list will soon expand up to a bunch of compulsive buys as well. The fact that uh, you give up on floppies and you're not going to buy a bunch of, of comic books that you have to then file and manage in your home uh, turns into a dollar bin dive at the next Comic-Con. And if comics aren't your bag, maybe it's records. Maybe it's you've given up, you've sold your record collection, you've whittled it down to the ones that you have to be buried with because you're not going to part with them. You're not going to buy any more records. You have Spotify now. You have YouTube now. You're an adult. You don't have time to just sit around and listen to music in the one room you're allowed to set your record player up anyway. 
But then you see one that you want. And it just hits you at the right moment. Maybe there's a couple. Maybe you've never seen that particular Devo record in such great shape. Or that Van Halen record that happens to still have its insert. Maybe you woke up, you got out of bed, and you just decided that, you know what, I need to listen to more Genesis. I haven't really given them a fair shake. And lo and behold, Half Price Books has seven, <coughs> pardon me, seven Genesis records just sitting there waiting for you. And we forget these things. We just have short memories as nerds. We forget how good we feel after we make an attempt to exercise afterwards or how miserable it is or how easy it is to easily tack on, you know, in the three, four, five thousand calorie range in a day. How quick the weight adds on. How damaging it is to overspend on multiple weeks in a row and and uh, live check to check and and sort of the cycle uh, that happens there of, of running out of cash and potentially overdrafting or needing to borrow money or use the credit card, how that compounds, we forget until we're in the pain of it again. So as we kind of slide into these winter months where we're trying to not only find things to do to keep our minds occupied when we get this cabin fever, but we're also trying to self-medicate a little bit as our, as our moods get a little grim and as the stress of the holidays approaches, money is hemorrhaging, plus we're needing to entertain ourselves, I would just encourage you to try to change your habits a little bit. Assist your nerd memory a little bit by making yourself able to refresh it before you've made those decisions. You know, if you're in my case, maybe you need to go inside the restaurant to see the uh, calorie counts. Or maybe you need to carry with you on your phone a picture of all your long boxes or your stack of stuff that you haven't read already. Or the mess of records that you can't bring yourself to stuff back in their sleeves and into their plastics and back on the shelf. You want to add to that pile? I think a lot of us, uh, a lot of us have something we can tighten up, make ourselves leaner and meaner nerds. Let's find a way to do that this winter. Let's be a little more healthy, a little more responsible. And we'll all struggle together and be grumpy about it. <laughs> I'll talk to you on the other side of the break. So often, uh, those of us who are obsessed with escapism, us nerds, us, uh, this nerd culture that we're in, whether it's being enamored with the rock and roll uh, scene or uh, movies or television or cartoons, anime, comic books, fiction, 
whatever corner of nerddom that you're you're occupying at the moment, a lot of it has to do with escape from reality and, and giving uh, an alternate story, an alternate narrative for us to embrace rather than what's really happening around us in the world and in our personal lives. That's really what it boils down to. It's a little mental vacation that you're taking. Some of them are positive, some of them are negative. That's an interesting psychological discussion that I wish I was uh, better equipped to, to make is, uh, you know, what does it say about someone who, uh, you know, is involved in nerd fiction, but they tend to only read things that are extremely sexy or extremely dark and violent? Like, are those little genres, those little niches that we, we tend to gravitate to, are, are they saying something about us as people or, or the conditions in our actual lives, or is it just a matter of taste? But back to my original statement is is that these things, these fictions, these stories, you know, they're supplanting reality at least momentarily for us nerds. So what makes one of these stories good? What what about them is appealing to us? It's not universal. There's obviously not a formula uh, per se. Otherwise, they would have weaponized it against us and they could just string out hit after hit after hit in whatever media you want to discuss there's more to it than that there's things that you can emulate and make something more likely to be considered good versus trash that doesn't always hold up though poor grammar, bad spelling ham-fisted morality play these things creep into things that are widely accepted all the time it doesn't make them less than. It's just another flavor. Uh, recently, you have guys like uh, Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola decided they needed to sound off on uh, all the money they're missing out on <laughs> from not being involved in the Marvel movies. And you know what? No one's saying these movies are Shakespeare to start with. And, you know, as a guy who likes comic books and likes a, a certain level of garbage storytelling... I'm not interested in the Marvel movies, not on a regular basis. I'll see one or two of them. I've not seen an Avengers movie to this day. And I don't know that I'll ever make time to sit down and watch any of them. I just don't care about them. But I don't think they're a pox on the movie industry. If anything, the money generated by these Marvel movies have reinvigorated uh, the idea of going to a theater and being excited in advance for a movie coming out. And then that money trickles down, and although it doesn't really work the way they tell us, tell us it works with money... That money does, in turn, enable those studios to take chances on other movies. You wouldn't have got a Deadpool, probably, if it wasn't for the success of Iron Man, the Avengers, Captain America. They were able to take a chance. And it paid off big, and because it paid off big, then they took a chance further. But what makes these stories good? What makes them appealing? 
one of the things I've been trying to do as I'm trying to take my writing uh, career more and more serious is, is sort of dissect things that I'm viewing. It kind of serves two purposes. One, it kind of gives me a toolbox to work from. If I can sort of dissect a scene and kind of see why those choices were made by, by the writers... It gives me something that I can draw on as I'm setting up uh, these ideas uh, on my own page. But secondly, it also helps me appreciate the fact that things that maybe aren't five-star review worthy still have some merit. They still had creative people working their butts off trying to get this thing onto the screen. And let me give you an example. I recently, uh, because it was October and uh, and I have less access maybe uh, streaming-wise than I would like, uh, was watching um, horror movies late at night uh, as the family went to bed uh, because my sleep schedule is permanently damaged now thanks to my current job. But... Um, but I had to kind of pick from what I had uh, available. And uh, The Haunting uh, was my choice one night. Now, The Haunting is a remake of a well-regarded haunted house movie that in turn was adapted from a very well-regarded haunted house story called The Haunting of Hill House. It's psychological, it's brooding, it's gothic. But The Haunting, which starred uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Liam Nielsen, and um, Owen, uh, I, can't think of, <laughs> I can't think of his last name. I keep wanting to say Owen Hart, and that's not right. But anyway, Owen and Luke blank, whatever their last name is. Boy, that's terrible. The memory is truly one of the first things to go, kids. Wilson. Owen Wilson. Jeez. But anyway, it starred these guys. The, the movie is more of a vehicle for the stars on the screen and the CGI um, as it was in those days. Uh, storytelling. They had some beautiful sets. They were, they were busy and crowded and kind of garish, to be honest. And then they had all this CGI at their disposal to really make things otherworldly and creepy. And as an aside, it really made things sort of less tense and less creepy. When you walk through something like the Haunted Mansion or you watch like uh, those old uh, horror movies like The Cat and the Canary, I mean, cobwebs and creaky floorboards and uh, bookcases that are secret uh, secret entrances to parts of the building you didn't think existed and you know uh, things like windows rattling and uh, the temperature dropping in a room these things are terrifying and they sort of add up uh, they kind of wrench up the nervousness the anxiety the tension but when you have a giant uh, CGI fist you know that the, the door becomes a fist and the the eyes uh, are the window and they narrow uh, 
into a face and then uh, these long spires that exist for no reason become its teeth and it tries to bite somebody or you know uh, the statues of of little kids' faces all can turn and act and move you know those things take you out of the reality of the surroundings a little bit and while it can be frightening and it's spooky and it's scary and it's fun it's not very real and it sort of shifts gears it takes you out of real life anxiety and gets you into play acting anxiety and when it switches over to play acting anxiety uh, uh, mileage may vary on your ability to do uh, that suspension of disbelief thing that's so important So anyway, The Haunting movie, it's not a four-star, not a five-star. It's not even really probably a three-star movie. It's not good. But there's some interesting things going on. I mean, this obviously wasn't something that was just slapped together. They had very creative people making a lot of money working on this. This was something that they put out there from a big studio, had a very big budget. And the opening scene was probably the best scene of the whole movie and nothing scary necessarily happened in it you have a woman who as much as you can have a lead actress in a movie look plain uh, was plain you know they tried to make her look like the woman next door uh, who's been put upon by the world but she's still very pretty and and uh, you know has facial features and skin that none of us will ever aspire to but um, you know she's obviously very tired <clears throat> doesn't dress glamorously and she's having a discussion with either her sister and brother-in-law or her sister and brother I never quite figured that out I think it was brother-in-law. I think it was a married couple. But the way that the man talked to her was very condescending in the way that family typically talks to one another, which wouldn't necessarily mean it couldn't be a brother-in-law. But the message was sent. She was less than compared to these two. Uh, There was a child with them, which made me think that maybe they were married. I think it was their child, and he was a brat, and he was disrespectful and out of control. And not only that, the parents weren't correcting him. The woman whose apartment they were in had to correct them, the lead actress. So what we gather from the scene as it plays out is that her mother had passed away and that her mother had been very sick for a long time, that it was sort of a slow burn And this woman had to take care of her. It was messy and thankless and uncomfortable. And she had lived with her mother and done all that with little to no help from outside in the family. But now that the mother had passed, they were settling her estate. And part of what they needed to do was sell the apartment because it had some value. But the apartment actually had become this woman's home. This is where she lived and worked, but she had no claim to it as her home, at least in movie logic. And so there's obviously some tension between the woman and these others. There's some anger. There's some resentment. They look down upon her. 
there's something unspoken going on. She doesn't quite belong in the family, even though by her efforts, uh, you know, she uh, cared deeply about the family, about the mother. Then you start to wonder why she was the good kid. Why was she the one taking care of the mother so urgently? Why didn't she have a job? Why didn't she have some space, some boundaries? She's single. Doesn't really have a social life. Doesn't have friends. Doesn't have love interest of her own. And now they're going to kick her out of this apartment. The brother-in-law tells her, well... It's not like we're sending you empty-handed. You can have mom's car. We know that you always enjoyed that car. It was a vintage car of some sort. And he holds out the keys, expecting her to take them gleefully. To which she replies, you're kicking me out of my home. But to make up for that, you're going to give me a 20-year-old car. And the brother replies, well, you know, we'll deduct it ultimately from, you know, your share of the estate once things are settled, of course. And then they go on to fight. The sister, her solution in her white wealthy uh, sort of attitude of benevolence is you can come and work for us and take care of the child. We could really use some help. He's a handful. You can come and be our nanny. So she wants to hire her sister to come and live with them in their home and basically be a surrogate mother for this bratty child who she's already sort of sown in her short temper with him that she's irritated by. She doesn't have that loving aunt relationship. She doesn't really know the child. She doesn't really know them anymore. She doesn't interact with that part of the family. During the shots of the child acting out, he grabs a hold of her mother's cane and is banging it against the wall. And then during that, he mimics the grandmother and says, Come help me. I need your help. I need to go pee or something like that. But the way that he phrases it and then the look, the look on the face of the lead actress makes you question whether or not The little boy is just that disrespectful or if something else was going on there. Then, of course, they ultimately just get on a fight. She kicks them out of her home, as she calls it. They leave with sympathetic looks on their face. They know, they have that that righteous knowledge that in the end that they will win because the courts and finances and everything are going to be on their side. And there's a pity for this woman who won't play ball and really doesn't have a pot to piss in.
They leave. Despair sets in. The woman immediately starts to look for a job. She's going to need to do something. She's been removed from the world so that she could serve her ailing mother. And now she's going to have to find a way to get back in the saddle with no skills, no no contacts, no uh, no education necessarily that we know of. And that sort of starts the movie because um, she received a phone call, was told to look in the paper. She did so. There's a sleep study coming up that pays. Might buy her some time and get some income. And then the movie starts from there. So this scene, this opening scene of the movie, I learned quite a bit. And as I was starting to revise the rough draft of my of my current novel that I'm writing, you know, it was very helpful because there's a lot of things communicated in that scene that set up the premise of the movie in a very show-don't-tell manner. In the world of creative writing, show-don't-tell is that generic advice that is actually good advice, but it's like amateur advice. It's sort of the righty-tighty, lefty-loosey of um, of writing, you know, measure twice, cut once. These things that are ultimately, you know, very helpful, but you get sick of hearing them, and it's the sort of, like, wisdom that everybody knows until you forget it or ignore it, and then there's problems and then someone's more than happy to step in and, and give you that advice again. Well, you know, you're supposed to show, not tell. But executing show, don't tell is not always very easy. And for those of us who grew up on Marvel Comics from the 70s, show, don't tell is very interesting because that is not what was happening in those comic books. It was a very tell, tell, tell. And it wasn't universal, but it was very common that we'd have these walls of info dumps, usually as a part of dialogue, which is the biggest no-no. Someone filling in the reader on all the critical information in a very unnatural way of just sort of giving a soliloquy. This is the, you know, supervillain you know, owning up to their master plan to the super uh, hero in detail, out loud, for the sake of the reader, in case we missed it, in case the Joker's plot was so convoluted and crafty that it was uh, above the minds of the, the Detective Comics reader, and so we needed Joker to explain it one more time clearly. And so a lot of us grew up on fiction that was very tell, 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 not show, don't tell. But in the more artistic comic books or, or in the more nuanced comic books, you know, we began to appreciate art that told a story that allowed the writer to kind of back off a little bit. Things that were storyboarded maybe instead of scripted. That there was some sort of kinetic motion or positioning in the panels that help convey what was going on 
without this text info dump, without a page of prose to catch you up on what's happening in the story. And with comics being a visual medium, uh, it's interesting that so often it, it's not, that it's still a very prosy media. Movies are the same way. You would think you could tell a story by what you see on the screen without a tremendous amount of info dump. But it doesn't happen that way. Instead of becoming a visual storytelling, it becomes an audio storytelling. But in this opening scene of The Haunting, they found a way to convey a lot of key information by showing and not telling. You understood that the empty bed and the house with ancient uh, decorations and you know, antiquated furniture was obviously belonging to an older woman. You could tell by looking at the woman and the way that her body language that she was not only sort of a foreigner to her own family members, but that she was plain and simple and, um, you know, uh, tired, <laughs> that she had not had an easy go of things. You can tell by the dismissiveness in the voice in the comments that there's some sort of a rift. There's some sort of financial gap between the sister and the other sister. You can tell by the effects in the mother's room that she was convalescing. This wasn't a sudden illness. This was a long-term thing and that her own home had sort of become, you know, a nursing facility for less or for better or worse, that she was able to stay in her home, but had become sort of a prison for this daughter that was taking care of her. There are hints in the conversation and in the uh, the layout of the room and such that uh, tell you that this was a contentious relationship. That this was not an older woman. who died with dignity and appreciation for her caregivers. That this was almost an act of martyrdom on the part of the caregiver. That in spite of the way she was being treated and in spite of the severity and the difficulty of taking care of this mother, she hung in there and did it. And through their discussions about money and homelessness, they explained the desperation and why she would seek out a way to earn some additional income. Later on in the movie, as hack as it seems, uh, you find out some different revelations regarding this woman. I won't tell them to you here because you might want to watch the movie sometime and it's a terrible train wreck, but there, you know, it's interesting at least. I wouldn't want to ruin the one sort of gleeful, uh, twist in the story. But a lot of that stuff from that opening scene makes the rest of the movie better. Had they just started with her pulling up 
to this enormous mansion for a sleep study, a lot of questions would remain. And a lot of horror movies start that way. But by adding this scene, this very well-crafted, well-acted, well-set, well-written scene, they were able to show a lot of things without telling. So I wanted to throw it out there. When you're looking at these comic books that you buy every week or you're watching these movies on Netflix that pop up in your queue or or a new series that drops and everybody's going to talk about it, so you're, of course, going to watch it, maybe something on HBO. Maybe you're not enjoying it 100%, but you'll be darned if you're going to miss it. I would encourage you, while you're watching it, to disengage a little bit and pick it apart. How did they assemble that scenery? How much of it do you think is authentic? How much of it do you think they had in a warehouse and just made use of it? How much of it was intentional? How much of it is CGI versus actual real props and setting? Do you think it's a soundstage? How did they build that? How did they make it functional? Why do you think they made the choices they did with the curtains or the knickknacks on the shelf or the books that you can see in the shot? Is the kitchen tidy behind her or is it a mess? Is that supposed to convey something about her without specifically drawing attention to it? How are the actors and actresses dressed? What are they saying and what are they not saying to each other on the screen? Why were those choices made? Is this a scene that you could have cut and it wouldn't have hurt the movie? Or does it act as a foundation for later understandings? When you're looking at a comic book and looking at the panel, and each panel should be just a snapshot, a storyboard, you know, Every 17th frame on a movie reel. Probably more than that. But when you look at it, why did they choose to signify that beat of the story's action with what they drew in that panel? Because it was easy? Because it made sense? Because it was fluid? Or maybe there's something being communicated from that particular drawing? If it's a three-by-three grid of just talking heads, not a lot of data is being communicated visually outside of the text. So if anything other than that is drawn, why did the artist make that choice? Why is the villain in the foreground and the hero in the background? If there's multiple heroes involved in the battle, what are they doing in the background? What are the other heroes busying themselves doing? How are the heroes interacting with one another in the passive scenes? What's the body language that they drew them? Are they drawing the women just so you can get a good clean shot of their cleavage or their rear end? Or or are they drawing them engaged with their scenery, with their cast? that might tell you something else. Does it hint at a relationship that isn't being discussed at the moment? Is someone repulsed by someone on their own team? Or maybe cold to them? 
or maybe they're warm to them. Maybe there's some body language that tells you there might be a little bit of a kinship or a romance budding. Is there anything in the drawings you see that makes you think that the hero is effortlessly dealing with a challenge or that they're actually struggling or that they have some self-doubt? Or is there just inspiration with how they've set their jaw and are just going about this monumental godlike task without even breaking a sweat? How do the artists tell you what time of day it is? Is there anything to give you some hint of what's going on in this imaginary world around these characters that you're trying to engage with? I would encourage you to look at your fiction in that way. Why were those choices made? Would you have done them different? Is there something you can learn from them? If you were going to sit down and write a similar scene, is there anything that you can add from that piece of fiction to your toolbox. Since I've been doing this, I think my own writing has improved. Now, naturally, you know, I'm not the one that gets to judge that. It's it's my sales. It's the people who read my stuff and give me feedback. So I don't know that it's confirmed. But in my eye, my writing has improved. As I finished this rough draft for this vampire novel I'm working on, um, I was satisfied to have the draft complete. But I was also dissatisfied when I looked at it from a story standpoint because I've written a premise and I filled it in. Um, I basically have come up with a script. But then I had to sit down and say, okay, what is this story about? What is a reader going to be able to see as what the greater message of this story is? What journey are these characters going through? What are they going to walk away from? Or are they just action figures that I've put into place and put them in a situation for this week's episode? And then I've tightened it up. I went back through. I rewrote... um, an intro chapter that I was somewhat satisfied with, but I completely deconstructed it and and told it from a different angle. And I'll admit, uh, partially because of watching The Haunting, because their opening scene was so so, uh, closely resembled kind of where my story opened. And because it was so well done, I wanted to do better with mine. I wanted to hint at the relationships and it's it's dangerous to do that because as a writer you don't want to underbake things and have it be completely missed and then i worry that the criticism will be like well you know this and this didn't really develop and you're like no but there's signs all along these clues i just didn't write them good enough for people to pick up on them um and and you kind of kick yourself for not just explicitly saying so-and-so likes so-and-so because of this that happened in the past, and therefore he always looked at him as a father figure, and he didn't have a real father, so therefore he loved this man more, blah, 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 blah. Rather than saying that, you just put hints in the story, and, and you trust that your writing skills are good enough that the readers will pick up on it. And maybe they won't when they read it the first time, but maybe something will happen 
towards the end of the book that they'll look back and say like, oh my God, that's why that was written in there. That's why they made that comment. That's why they have that relationship. And those are the more rewarding times when consuming fiction is when you piece together something that isn't explicitly stated on screen. It all boils down to appreciation. Appreciation of art for the effort and the choices that are made. The emotions that they elicit and, um, you know... uh, the fact that you walk away from it and still think about it after uh, you hit the end credits or, or the last page or whatever. You don't have to enjoy all art, but you can appreciate art at the level that it's presented in the form that it was presented to you. It's a little more difficult with things like comics and novels and and albums and movies because so often they're also a, a commodity. They're also a product that are designed to maximize return of investment. So there's sort of that consumerism that's involved there. So you're getting kind of a snack food version of art. But it's still art. It's still on the screen. It's still made by people who take their various crafts very seriously And they want you to think about it. They want you to later on say, holy cow, the dresses in that movie were incredible. When I look at a movie like um, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's a very frustrating movie. Because it's a hot mess, top to bottom. But there are things in that movie that are absolutely incredible. And the costumes is, is one of those things. They went all out. And you appreciate that. And then you start to look at them and like, what? why were they chosen for this? Why were these particular uh, costumes chosen? Other than the fact they look good on the screen. Are they communicating something about that person's personality or their relative stature in this scene? And that becomes sort of this side fun game that you can play with this piece of art. And I'll be honest with you, doing this sort of thing has made me not only able to tolerate and sit through a lot of movies, normally I wouldn't, but I've actually revisited movies that normally, uh, if I just took them at face value, I would never need to see again. So what are some examples of showing not telling in one form or another that you can think of. Is there a comic book? Is there, uh, is there a movie or a television show or a stage play or, or a novel that, uh, that you can think of that you've consumed recently that you were sort of um, drawn to a detail, something not explicitly uh, you know, a high point that they, they tried to put a neon arrow pointing to, that you drew from? that enrich that product to you, that piece of art, and you think was really well done. Is there something else you would offer up as another tool to put in our toolkit as creators? Or as fans, for that matter? When you go back and watch David Lynch's Eraserhead 
and watch Nance's performance throughout that entire movie. You can just feel his malaise. And while he's a tragic character, he's also like a self-inflicted character. But he doesn't ever have these monologues that says, like, life was never easy for me. I find getting up in the day very blah, 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 blah. He didn't do that. It's a very visual piece of art. And if anything, you know, David Lynch is a very visual artist. But there's these wonderful scenes, like when Nance is on the elevator and the door opens and he's just sort of kind of leaning lazily to the side with his head just sort of flopped over on his shoulder just like the the act of riding an elevator up to his apartment just is exhausting for him he just doesn't have it within him to even have any sort of facade of energy or or um uh, presence in the world He's just fatigued. He's fatigued by the world and the events around him and the conditions of his own life. He's depressed. And you see that in his interactions. This lonely, depressed, put-upon man. And when you see that and realize that's what's being communicated with it, it changes that movie. It changes the way you look at movies. You start to look at other movies and say, like, what does this person's body language tell me that he's not saying with his mouth? This becomes a tool. Once you realize it's being done, it becomes a tool in your ability to enjoy fictional art. So what examples do you have? Let me know over on Twitter at Carl Smith Writer. Or you can email me, carlsmithwriter at gmail.com. You can tell me to my face. You can look me up on Facebook. I don't care. I love the feedback. But tell me about what's in your toolkit as a creator or as someone who enjoys fiction, especially regarding showing and not telling. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of Goad Kicker. It's a little delayed getting out this week, but that's how these things go. If there's anything you want to hear me talk specifically about, let me know on the side. I'm always open to hearing what the masses want to hear. Otherwise, it's a game-time decision almost every time. In the next couple of weeks, I kind of want to do an update on where I'm at with some of the writing projects, uh, my own path as uh, approaching uh, a writer. I don't want to do a whole show on it, but I do want to mention it. It's November. This is when I'm supposed to be doing NaNoWriMo, if you're a writer. November is supposed to be National Writer Novel Writers Month. The idea is that if you can divide up 50,000 words over the course of November daily that we're all supposed to have produced the rough draft of a novel by the end of the month. What it turns into is an endless chain of meeting in coffee shops, uh, message boards, uh, Twitter with hashtags. I don't know how any writers get anything done with all the time that they spend telling people that they're involved with NaNoWriMo. They're logging their progress, 
they're doing little chats aside with each other about how many words they've written or blah 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 I find it distasteful <laughs> on a lot of levels I don't enjoy it but it is November and I do want to buckle down and since you know the feeling is in the air you know it's a uh, it's writer's month so I've really buckled down I, I paused my Patreon um, I've backed off on a couple other commitments and I'm really trying to polish this rough draft that I'm working on and I want to talk a little bit more about that and kind of where I'm heading with my writing career in the next year. And then to make an appeal, of course, as always, for your continued emotional and uh, financial support, uh, either by writing and, uh, or reading and reviewing my books or, or what have you. So we'll talk about that in the next few weeks. I didn't want to do that this week, but I do want to mention it. For those of you who were involved with my Patreon and wondered why I paused it, that's that's why. It's just I feel guilty I'm not giving content back, taking people's money and not really producing anything. The Patreon makes more sense, uh, I think, for an artist that's uh, creating content that people can take home with them or enjoy. And I like the goodwill that people are willing to put finances towards what I'm working on as me, I per, uh, pursue my dream, but... Um, you know, the the readership and the sales don't tell me that 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 support goes much further than just that goodwill. So, um, I want to level up my game a little bit and maybe give you a reason to believe <laughs> before I sort of beg for money via Patreon. Goad Kicker, as always, is free. Matter of fact, they use it as a punishment in some prisons. So if you're enjoying this podcast, I appreciate your time. Have not had a lot of critiques of Goad Kicker. People have kind of kept that to themselves. I know that people are listening. It doesn't have the same number of downloads as a Paranormal Dad's, which is probably the most successful podcast in our network but it has a small dedicated fan base that's flattering to be honest with you especially considering the lo-fi nature and the lack of effort put into this show I hope that you get something from it I hope and and, and I, I suspect that this is true and I've heard people say as much, but the Goat Kicker offers something that they're not getting in other podcasts. And there are a billion podcasts out there. It, it, it's getting weird out there. You can really go down some rabbit holes, and there's a lot of high-quality stuff out there. Very specific, very genre. Interesting, funny, informative. So if someone's going to waste an hour listening to the Goat Kicker, you know, I'm flattered. Absolutely flattered. Even if you're using this as AMSR, you know, there's something to put on to put yourself to sleep. Hey, more power to you. More power to you. And I'll take it. I'll take it as a compliment. But, um, but I do appreciate the, le- uh, the, the, the listenership. I... I hope that whatever it is that I'm giving you that you're getting here and not elsewhere is worth it. And I hope that you're applying it to your life in some way. I just want us nerds to be better people. 
it's a quest that I'm on uh, myself, and I invite you to join me in that in that effort. Find a way to uh, be kind and, and responsible and realistic within our tribe. As I close out this week's show, um, I know that a lot of you might find yourselves with more time to sit around and listen to uh, podcasts as the winter comes. Again, it sort of removes options for activity uh, the, the longer, further we get into wintertime. And so I just wanted to point out that there are some other podcasts out there that I would recommend. Um, I'm sure that most of you are aware of these. Uh, because we all kind of run in similar circles, but I wanted to specifically mention them in case that's uh, you know not the not the situation. In case some of you really are looking for some new content within our own podcast arcade, uh, there are several podcasts that are being published. Um, I would recommend Covert Nerd. Um, it's a shorter podcast. My good friend Lee Searcy uh, does it uh, solo, much like I do this solo. Although his is much better. Uh, uh, produced and sounds uh, a lot more um, rehearsed than mine does. Uh, even though that may not be the case, it just sounds a little more professional. Lee does a wonderful job. He talks about a lot of different topics. He reviews comics and books and movies sometimes. He talks about uh, his memories of arcade games and, and wrestling. It's a very uh, it's a very grow up in the 80s nerd podcast and it's really enjoyable and I think there's something there for everybody to enjoy. He does these bits on Tolkien, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien that are very good. And if you're just looking for a little something with a little extra nerd content, that wouldn't be a bad choice. Um, The Grawlix podcast. G-R-A-W-L-I-X. You know when you're reading a comic book and Howard the Duck swears but they can't print the swear word so they print all those symbols that's called the Grawlix you know the expletive deleted sort of symbology we all know that there's a swear word but and most of us can figure out which swear word it would have been but they can't print it so they just put those random symbols and then it has a plausible deniability for everybody involved the publisher's not putting filth in the minds of our youth and our youth can pretend like there's nothing dirty in the magazine right that's what a Grolix is. However, the Grolix podcast has nothing to do with that. It's a bunch of really great people doing some deep dives on some different topics, some different properties. Super fun. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of variety on that show. I think you'd really dig it. I think it's something that uh, you put on in the kitchen while you're cooking or baking especially keep the news off (laughs) just keep the television off for Pete's sake listen to some Grolix podcast on our own network obviously uh, Paranormal Dads which I already mentioned three guys that get together and just talk about like a paranormal story that's in the headline or they review uh, you know they take a topic at random like the Mothman or haunted houses or ghosts and and they sort of talk about it and sort of uh, seriously and uh, humorously look at the world of the paranormal. The personalities involved are, are, are wonderful. And um, 
they all have some skin in the game uh, one way or another uh, regarding uh, paranormal activity. Again, it's it's a wonderful podcast. It comes out, you know, pretty regularly. But it's the sort of podcast where you can go back and pick and choose episodes or or listen at your leisure. It's not a current events type thing, so it's just content out there for you to enjoy. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have a day where you're sort of in the mood to talk about spooky things or weird occurrences in the world, like staircases that appear in the middle of nowhere in a uh, national park, for instance... If that sort of stuff sort of tickles your fancy, then I'd, I'd encourage you to look into it. I'm involved, although you can barely prove it, with uh, a podcast uh, Jeff and Eddie uh, have taken the reins of called Make Attorney a Great Again, which talks about all things He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. That's a selfish plug. But it is a fantastic podcast, and I don't mind recommending it because I'm involved with it so infrequently that it's not really my own content. I don't really benefit from you listening to it other than I just wanted to see people enjoy it. Uh, it's as much about He-Man as it is about that feeling that He-Man gave us as kids. So even if you sort of like, yeah, I had a He-Man figure in my toy box, but it wasn't my jam, you still may enjoy the show. Because it's as much about cartoons and toys and, and, that, and that feeling of being a child in the fictional content that they marketed to us uh, as it is about anything. Then, of course, there's the two heavy hitters, as far as I'll call it. Uh, you know, the two-headed nerd, uh, Matt and Joe have been friends forever. They've done this podcast forever. They review the week's comic books more or less. If you're really interested in superhero comics or, or you know, monthly or bi-monthly comic books, it's really the best produced and, and the most fun podcast out there. They do a wonderful job, and uh, they really build a fun community around their product. They have two shows a week. Uh, one is their standard show. It comes out in the middle of the week. And then uh, on Saturday, they record live. You can call in just like a radio show. They broadcast it on Facebook, and then they record it, and then you can download it later if you weren't involved with it or didn't get a chance to see it and uh, listen to it. And so it's got a lot of uh, you know listener content as well. And there's a cast of characters that sort of show up and uh, some regulars that um, really make it a fun time and, um, and sort of hammers home the idea that the, uh, what we're involved in here is actually a community as much as anything. As singular and lonely as being a comic fan could have been in 1986, depending on how big of a circle of friends you had of your own, um, in this day and age, we've all found each other, and it's it's made it not only more acceptable socially, but it, it's made it more joyful and um you know, uh, when you read a good comic book, you want to talk about it with other people who like comic books, right? You have opinions. You want to talk about how cool something was or how dumb something was or how neat a certain villain is or what you think is going to happen with this storyline. That's what Two-Headed Nerd is, is sort of all about, is that joy of comic books. And then the last one I mentioned is by far not the least... Worst comic podcast ever. Three guys who have been friends since high school. They're all my age or a smidge older. I won't tell you which ones are older. 
spoiler alert, I think it's all three of them. But um, they've known each other forever. They have a, a, an incredible friendship and an incredible, uh, incredible rapport with each other. Um, each one of them comes from a different walk of life and kind of have different careers and bring different attitudes and uh, experiences to the table. It's a very respectful and fun and uh, casual, but at the same time, a very informed podcast. These guys have, you know, over a century combined, easily, of experience of hardcore comic fandom. Most of all, they're involved. They're involved in doing panels, at traveling to conventions. They've done other podcasts. They sort of take a researcher's approach to comic books just in their own fandom they know the artist they talk to the artist they originally are all three from the kansas city area and so they're there uh, kansas city for those of you who aren't aware is sort of a hotbed of uh, of comics activity you know new york portland of course are going to be your big two but kansas city is not wanting for comic book talent and so they do have some so quote-unquote local ties as well as others that they've picked up through their um, convention appearances and they're highly responsible with their uh with their access and with their their presence uh because they do use it to benefit the hero initiative which is a a charity that helps uh take care of some of the expenses uh, incurred by uh, illness and old age and um, unfortunately uh, sometimes death of uh, comic book uh, talent you know these people aren't nine to fivers building a pension these are freelance workers often who brought a lot of joy to the world through their pen or or, or their words or their concepts and uh, uh, we hate to see them sort of hit that time in life where uh, health gets bad and uh, finances get tight and uh, they really aren't able to draw like many of us would um, from retirement and from 401ks and things like that. They need a little extra something and the Hero Initiative is there to kind of help uh, pick up the slack for these artists. And they're very involved with raising money and um, getting the word out there for that initiative. And I would encourage you to support worst comic podcast ever if for no other reason other than to be aware of what the current initiatives are with the hero initiative and um and to be involved that way if you're going to you know give some money charitably as a nerd and just don't know quite where to send it you know don't give it to the salvation army don't give it to the red cross you could consider the comic book legal defense fund or the ACLU. But for my money, the one that's going to make the most impact and one that doesn't, you know, get a lot of attention on a, on a wider uh, scope is this Hero Initiative. And I think that you sort of owe it to yourself and to the artists that have enriched your life to at some point donate to that charity. The good news is, usually if you do that, you get something in return. Artists that will co-table with the Worst Comic Podcast Ever and other uh, hosts um, will often do sketches or have a chat with you or, you know, uh, do some autographing. And they have these wonderful coins and books that they put out that are meaningful to comic book fans. 
as a thank you for your financial consideration to the foundation and all the time and effort that's been donated to put those things together. A little extra shelf porn for you for being a good person. And since a good kick, goad kicker is you know, primarily about being a good steward with your time and money, I, I think it's important to be involved in that sort of thing. But all that aside, it's still a wonderful podcast anyway. You're going to get uh, a little bit of current comic discussion, some deep dives into events and uh, story characters and, and plot lines from the past. These guys are steeped in 70s and 80s comic knowledge and 90s. Let's not sleep on the 90s. And uh, more often than not, when I listen to that show, it makes me wish I could just dive into uh, a pile of comic books and read again. It's sort of about the love of comic books for what they are. We all know how problematic and how silly and how disappointing comic books can often be. But at the same time, they're also sort of fun for that same reason. And and the Worst Comic Podcast ever celebrates that as much as anybody I know. Very positive. Very rarely do they just wham on something. If it's something they all um, have a negative view on, they tend to avoid it. So anyway, those are some podcasts I would look into. There's some others. I'll kind of pepper them throughout. But those are some ones, if I was you, I would add to my Spotify or iTunes or Stitcher uh, playlist, kind of sample through. And let me know what you think. These are allies of mine. These are friends of mine. And they're all doing a better job at podcasting than I. So if you're spending time on this podcast, why not float them a listen Take care of yourself, guys, out there. Uh, Try to do some kindness. Find a way to use what you have to benefit the lives of others. If you're not feeling 100% the best yourself or if life is kicking you between the legs, you're not alone. And uh, just reach out and you'll find someone willing to listen and commiserate with you. And, And let us know how we can help you as well. Let's all pat each other on the back and hold each other up. Kind of face these turbulent times together let's all read a comic book or two until next time take it easy guys